Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Let's see if we can pick up the thread here by returning to that final riff at the end of the subversion of the subject and the dialectic of desire. You know the sentence I'm talking about. And it's not the sentence that says, I won't go any further here, although we'll come to that again. It's that penultimate sentence, the one that reads, castration means that jouissance has to be refused in order to be attained on the inverse scale of the law of desire. This is where we started in our last lecture. It's where I want to pick up as we begin this lecture. And I want to suggest that there are five basic elements in this penultimate sentence. First, there's the notion of castration. Here we can just think basically about the sequence of loss and lack prohibition and positionality that we have always used to describe this phenomenon known as castration or symbolic alienation in the Lacanian tradition. The second element in this sentence is the notion of jouissance refused. Here in seminar 17, which we've been studying, we get a sense of what it is that is in fact refused. It's a renounced pursuit of sexual jouissance as wholeness, as completion, etc., etc. What is refused is any further pursuit of those objectives. We also, in Seminar 17, get a sense of what the third element in this sentence is, this jouissance attained. The jouissance that is refused conditions a jouissance that is attained. And this, of course, is surplus enjoyment. The jouissance attained is an embraced pursuit of surplus jouissance. So there's the renounced pursuit of sexual jouissance that is constitutively linked, reciprocally constitutive of, you've heard me say, this jouissance attained that is an embraced pursuit of surplus enjoyment. So those are the first three elements in this sentence. Castration, jouissance refused, and jouissance attained. There's also this inverse scale by which this refusal and attainment would unfold. This inverse scale in the sentence, you've heard me say, refers to the return trajectory at the top of the graph of desire. We'll come back to that. That is indeed the focal point of today's discussion. And then there's this fifth element, the law of desire, which I would suggest is the centerpiece of what we were doing in our last lecture. This union of law and desire, where the you must of prohibition by a newly dead father couples and becomes one with, if you like, the we will of the social pact, a newfound brotherhood that reaffirms this prohibition. It's tempting to take these five elements, 
castration, jouissance refused, jouissance attained, the inverse scale and the law of desire, and to further divide them into two columns. On the one side, you'd have loss. On the other side, you'd have lack. On one side, you'd have prohibition. On the other side, you'd have positionality. Here you have the basic pistons of castration. Loss plus lack leading to desire. Prohibition plus positionality giving us the law. So you'd have loss and prohibition on one side, lack and positionality on the other. And we can just keep working through the columns. Underneath prohibition, you'd have subjugation. Underneath positionality, you'd have subjectivization. You've heard this before, and you can imagine these two columns unfolding. In the field of jouissance, you'd have sexual jouissance as jouissance refused in the column under loss, prohibition, and subjugation. And then on the other side, under lack, positionality, and subjectification, you'd have surplus enjoyment as a jouissance attained. And if we wanted to keep going, thinking along the lines of these columns, on the side with loss, prohibition, subjugation, and sexual jouissance as jouissance refused, you would have the law of the newly dead father. Here is his, you must. And then in the other column, under lack, positionality, subjectification, surplus jouissance as jouissance attained, you would have the desire of the newly forged brotherhood whose social pact exists in the pronouncement, we will, a reaffirmation of the symbolic dead father's prohibition. Now, let me ask you a question. What's missing from this two-column spread? I'll tell you what's missing. The inverse scale part. Where does the inverse scale fit if we allow this two-column thinking? Maybe the answer is, first and foremost, we shouldn't allow this to be a simple two-column approach to all the elements in this key sentence at the end of the Subversion of the Subject essay. Elements whose full elucidation we are now working at in Seminar 17. Why? Because what we know about twos, two entities, two events, two columns, is that where two or more have gathered, you will always have a third. Namely, the differential relation between those two entities. That same logic that gives us our foundational definition of objet also applies here. The inverse scale that connects each dyad in these two columns is that third element. And it's precisely this third element that I want to focus on. What exactly are we to make of this so-called inverse scale? A clue comes to us, again, the top of the graph of desire, where the uppermost trajectory from castration to jouissance, from the drive to its various realizations, where this upper trajectory is, wait for it, retroactive. It is a retroactive arrow. Here in seminar 17, the retro efficacies that Lacan has in mind 
are logically, structurally, necessarily repetitive. Here's that link between repetition and retroaction. That is another clue to add to this understanding of the inverse scale. And this connection between repetition and retroaction from the subversion of the subject essay up through our current text, Seminar 17, is every bit in line with Lacan's earlier treatments of the topic of repetition as retroaction. Think, for instance, of work we've done under Lacan's theory of repression as the return of the repressed, where trauma and symptom are linked together by a retroactive trajectory. What's repeated in the act of repetition on the one side and the act of repetition where what is repeated finds expression as lost. So the symptom is an act of repetition where a trauma is repeated and experienced as lost, primal, and yet at the same time all too present. Similarly, the return of the repressed is an act of repetition where what is repressed is repeated and finds expression as just that, repressed. We've heard this before. I just want to flag it for you. The structure of repetition that we see in repetition in, in the repressed and its return, especially as we developed it before and during our series on Seminar 11, is precisely what's at stake here. It's popping in Seminar 17 as well. Let me be as clear as possible, even at the risk of sounding like a lunatic. This is what I think Lacan is up to here. Because what is repeated depends on a later act of repetition, the latter, this act of repetition, in a very real sense, is the cause of the former. The symptom is the cause of the trauma. Now that's a brazen thing to say for anybody who's endured a traumatic circumstance, but the logic is the one that Lacan is working at here. And indeed, this is especially clear when we factor in logics of repression. We only access the repressed via its return, so much so that they're largely indistinguishable. It's and as the return of the repressed that we gain access to the field of repression. Conceptually speaking, what Lacan is saying is that Past trauma is a retroactive effect caused by symptomatic expressions. Now, I say this is a brazen claim because I'm not telling you that your symptoms caused your traumas. Nah, man, your traumas were caused by that particular individual who that did that particular thing before you were particularly ready to accept that, etc., etc. Trauma is real. But precisely because it's real, it means that our encounter with that trauma is always missed. This is what Lacan means in Seminar 11 when he talks about encounters with the real as always being missed encounters. Yeah, that shit happened, but you weren't there. You have no memory of it. Your experience of it was blocked. Your sensory apparatus, whatever it was, was completely overloaded 
and you were shut down. It's at the level of a later symptomatic expression that you can gain access retroactively to that past trauma. That's what Lacan means here. Conceptually, the argument sounds crazy, but it is also the most precise way to state it. Past trauma is a retroactive effect of symptomatic expression at a later date. Listen, past trauma may be temporarily prior to current symptoms. Completely makes sense that they would be, right? Temporarily prior. But current symptoms are logically prior to past traumas. There's that shift again in Lacan's thought from temporal thinking to logical thinking. Logically speaking, symptoms come first. They are prior to the past traumas that they index on account of repression, but also on account of how we know repetition works. It's only in the act of repetition that an earlier entity or event becomes what is repeated. Again, we've been over this before, but I think it's such an important conceptual piston in Lacan's thought at this stage that we really just have to make sure we've got it under our belts. I also like it because it links back to some other stuff Lacan was doing, also in the 1960s, around this notion that at the time we defined as objectality. I believe it's straight out of Seminar 10. Objectality, Lacan says, is the study of causes. And you'll recall that this emerges for us in our series on Seminar 10, I believe, as a split between objectivity, which is the kind of fetishistic fantasy of modern science, and objectality, which is the proper science of psychoanalysis. Objectivity is always obsessed with objects, what they are, Objectality is more concerned with the causes of objects, the conditions of their possible, potential, and potentially differential existence. That's a different question. It's a question of cause. What causes objects? What allows, if you recall the classic example, the pen to appear against the background of the wall? That is objectality. Not a study of objects, but a study of openings, gaps and fissures that allow differential relations between entities to exist and thus one of those entities to be isolated and studied. We've been over this again, it's review, so I won't spend much time with it. But this notion of repetition and retroaction hooks very well into this topic because it scrambles our typical thinking of cause and effect, where there's a cause in the past that results in an effect that follows. Lacan is flipping those things. Objectality, as the science of psychoanalysis, is the study of causes that are final, and final because they're retroeffective. In other words, they are causes whose effects, although felt in the present, are made to appear in the past. And that's the really elusive part of all this. The effects of these final causes are felt in the present, typically as loss, but they're made to appear 
as figurations in the past. The same is true, as we have seen, for sexual jouissance, as this jouissance refused, and surplus jouissance, as this jouissance attained. Recall how this works. Sexual jouissance only exists as a fantastical retroactive effect of surplus enjoyment. A never was and never shall be wholly and utterly mistaken for a no longer and a not yet. And all in the here and now of the field of surplus enjoyment. Sexual enjoyment, hear me now, it exists as an illusory figure of paradise lost and paradise to be regained in the pursuit of surplus enjoyment today. It is not a lost past. It is a past figured as lost felt and experienced as loss in the present, a present defined by the pursuit of surplus enjoyment. <clears throat> so we're getting close to understanding, again, this connection between cause and effect in Lacan's totally wild way of thinking these two topics. Isn't this, again, precisely why I call surplus enjoyment a renunciation of renunciation? Or if we want to put it like a bit more technically and in terms that we've been using here, a sublimated indexical return of a repressed prohibition? I want to be even more precise, if we can be. And even more direct, if that's possible as well. We might say that sexual jouissance exists as a declaration of the impossible, a sign of the impossible, a statement of the impossible, and all within the field of surplus enjoyment, which is also the field, as you know, of language, of the symbolic, of symbolic alienation, and you can go on listing terms for society that Lacan uses. Sexual jouissance is the name of the real, as we find it in the symbolic. It marks what Lacan in Seminar 17 calls a logical obstacle. You heard me refer to this quote in our last lecture. It's a logical obstacle in the symbolic. It's a signed and posted limit, just as indebted to signifying articulation as any other sociolinguistic element. That's the thing about sexual jouissance. When it shows up as a declaration, a sign, a statement of the impossible, as a name of the real, what it presents is a logical obstacle within the symbolic, a speed bump, a barrier, some sort of a threshold, a hole in the ground, a rock that you tumble over, something that is a signed and posted limit, and just as much an effect of signifying articulation as any other signed and posted entity or event in the symbolic. That's the thing about the real. 
it is an effect of signification just like any other effect of signification. And yet, and yet, we encounter it in a totally different way. Let's take a chance here. You heard me say it once, let me say it again. Sexual jouissance is the name of the real as it finds expression in the field of the symbolic where surplus jouissance thrives. The name of the real bit is, of course, from those pages we were looking at in our last lecture. Check out page 123, 125. I think 123 is the good one there. This idea, though, that sexual jouissance is a name of the real in the field of the symbolic where surplus enjoyment prevails. That's what's up. And I really like how Lacan is putting this. A declaration, a sign, a statement, a name of the impossible, a name of the real. What are we talking about here? Is this daddy's mythical fabled grave? Yeah, you're damn straight. But it's also his crumbling tombstone as well. Another, quote, rejected stone for the analysts to consider on their between-session walks. If you've got ears to hear, I'm referring to this interesting passage on page 109 of Seminar 17, where Lacan likens the position of the analyst as objet a in the dominant position in the discourse of the analyst that we've discussed as a rejected stone. Early in the seminar, he calls that the reject. Totally interesting here that a hundred pages later, he is now referring to this as the rejected stone. And I want to suggest that that is precisely the name of the real that we're dealing with here at the level of dead daddy's crumbling tombstone that marks the ditch, the divot, the hole in the field of surplus jouissance that, as you've heard me say, you can't help but stumble into every now and again. I think it's just as important to be playful and weird with this stuff because you never know what type of a breakthrough these kind of imaginative flights of fancies might allow. That might be precisely what Lacan is up to when he's talking about this rejected stone that the analyst is and then can consider as they go on a walk after one of their appointments. But those aren't the pages that I'm working on here. The pages I'm vamping on here are 123 to 125, the key passages of which you've already heard me read in the last lecture. Hear it again, hear it better. The so-called original enjoyment and prohibition of the father of the horde and his subsequent, quote unquote, subsequent murder by his sons, these are all bound by the same repetitive retroactive logic as sexual jouissance. It's only in the here and now of what Lacan calls a second moment, and only as a statement of the impossible in that second moment, in this here and now, that these pasts of enjoyment, prohibition, and the kill exist. This 
is the inverse scale of the law of desire at work, as expressed in that final riff at the end of the subversion of the subject essay that we've been considering. I want to keep after it, just a couple more minutes, saying it again in hopes of saying it better. The exclusive enjoyment, inaugural prohibition, and subsequent murder of the father of the horde that Lacan is discussing in these middle chapters of Seminar 17. They are all figures of impossibility, wandering errantly as a series of logical obstacles, call them tombstones, through the symbolic. The word Lacan is using to designate all of this is myth. They wander through the symbolic in figurations that are mythical. And they are only ever encountered as such, as these fantastical, mythical refigurations made to appear and experienced as loss. And it's precisely here in these fantastical, mythical refigurations of that exclusive enjoyment that only daddy had, which is he gets to have all the ladies and the sons get none. That inaugural prohibition that we often like to talk about as the no of the father. And then the subsequent murder of the father. Symbolic, literal. Freud suggests that maybe it's literal. But of course we know that really it's more of a metaphor here that we're talking about here. And that's Lacan's point too, is that if you can imagine being a person who enjoys all of the opposite sex or the same sex or a huge other group of sexual beings, Lacan has this kind of hilarious point where he's like, what a fucking impossibility. He says, you know, it's impossible to just be with one person and have that be enough, sexually speaking. Imagine having a whole horde, not just a harem, but all women are yours. And then you are responsible somehow for engaging and pleasing them all and they all please you and all this shit. Lacan's like, that's fucking impossible. That's his point. That's his point by designating this as a myth. That shit ain't real. Doesn't mean you're not castrated. What it means though is that the myth is well adjusted to be experienced in this fantastical, redisfigured status as loss in the field of the here and now of post-castrative symbolic life. That's Lacan's point here. But what he wants to add is that, and he reiterates this on page 124, is that surplus jouissance takes body, he says, in and as these fantastical, mythical refigurations of loss. Surplus enjoyment, Lacan is telling us here, is embodied in the figure of loss that sexual enjoyment comes to embody itself. So the idea that these two, sexual and surplus enjoyment, are reciprocally constitutive is just the tip of the iceberg. Sexual enjoyment figured as loss is the very thing in which surplus enjoyment takes body, Lacan says. 
And he reiterates this again. And anytime he says it twice, you better damn well pay attention. I think that's partly why he does it. I wonder if this is yet another reason to read this whole process as one of these inverse scales in keeping with the end of the subversion of the subject essay, where we see this top trajectory in the graph of desire presenting and functioning as a retroactive meaning-making trajectory, extending from castration to jouissance. Here's why. What if the signifiers of lack in the big barred other, what you see in the upper left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, the same signifiers of lack in the other that guide us to the drive in the upper right-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, I wonder if these signifiers are also those which prop up the surplus enjoyment that the drive is all too often made to serve, one sublimated consumer experience after the other. As a sign, statement, declaration, name of the impossible void around which every symbolic system is structured, the no longer, not yet, figure of sexual enjoyment, I would like to end by suggesting, is a signifier of the big, barred other's titrated, limited relation to jouissance. It is the designation of that limit in jouissance beyond which each of us dare not pass. That's enough for now. We won't go any further here today. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 